0: Hi, this is Elby from Vincent Price's Laugh. And we'd like you to know that this episode contains spoilers. Welcome to Vincent
1: Price's Laugh. Good evening, Elby.
0: Hello, Andrew. No. Hello. (laughs) That's not
1: macabre or spooky. Maybe more like Morticia. Or, you know...
0: Hello, Andrew.
1: Yeah, that's just you, normal.
0: <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> what is more Hi,
1: everybody. We're back from nowhere, because we're always here. Anyway,
0: <laughs> did,
1: we're on the internet. When did we leave? We didn't.
0: So let's just start by saying that this episode is a remake...
1: Of a previous episode.
0: Yeah, we had tried to record this episode about a year and a half ago.
1: But scrapped it.
0: Yeah, and we'll we'll get to what it is. <laughs> in a minute, but I want to talk about remakes in general first. So I've been speaking recently about remakes and what the problems with them are, and mostly the problem that I have with remakes is that there's no way around comparing them to the original work.
1: There is, but I'm going to tell you how. The movie has to be severely outdated. And out of Mm -hmm. the popular cinema vernacular, we don't have it in our forefront. So something like Frankenstein, all we know is the silly images of Boris Karloff. By now, the kids aren't going to know Frankenstein other than the silly depictions of flathead Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So that's all that's there. They're st- still there, but nobody's watching those movies,
0: right? And that that's my second point. Actually, is because there's such a barrage of remakes lately. Everyone is so sick of them. But really, the reason is everything that's being remade is something that we are already very familiar with. Yeah. Now, take for an example, like you always say, oh, everybody hates remakes. But what about the thing, or you know, like these sure the, these films that everybody loves so much that are in reality a remake the original material is something that isn't cherished it's not something that
1: it's just good it's good enough to make a movie of in the first place and then they make the movie so I'm talking about the thing because it was a short story Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then they make the movie and then it's just it's kind of a forgotten B movie and these filmmakers grew up on Mm -hmm. those so they have a beloved spot and their heart for it uh-huh so they remake it
0: and they know that it's something that could definitely use an update heck yeah because going from you know 1950 to 1980 that's a huge 30 years yeah there, there's so many um advancements in movie making technology special effects story writing the other thing is people didn't used to go to movies all the time you think about the 40s and the 50s i mean not everybody could afford to go to the theater
1: uh, they were we're cheaper then, but still. You had theater houses. Uh-huh. I think people would go in sometimes only to get out of the cold. Right. But they were considerably cheaper. But I don't know what a dime back then is versus now. Definitely worth a whole lot more. But my dad used to go see B-movies and serials right. when he was a child yeah. on Saturdays.
0: Right. So did my dad. Like, I've had conversations with him about stuff like that before. It was a Saturday afternoon thing for kids to do. Mm-hmm. I don't think really adults went to the theater very often. I mean, I could be wrong. This is just my own perception of what family life was like back then. Most most of the time, it was your average family just stayed home and listened to the radio at night.
1: Watch Dazzy and Harriet.
0: Yeah. So movies, although they were enjoyed, it wasn't like a badge of honor to people like movies are today.
1: Well, how the beatniks were about literature mm-hmm. is how cinephiles are now with film. Sure. That's what I think. It's a point of prestige of what uh, if you're what various sects you come from uh-huh. in cinephilia. You are either like a hardcore grindhouse dork or <laughs> gorehound or a criterion-only collector yeah, type yeah, of yeah. thing. So you have your little sect of movie-watching, but you most of the time people who speak about it speak in, in a kind of voice that those beatniks used to have in regards to their contemporaries, poets, and previous literature. You know, even the Russians, the hard stuff. <laughs> they would speak very lofty phrases. Mm-hmm. And this is how a lot of us movie monsters, I don't know, talk.
0: Right. I guess the point, what, I, what I'm trying to say is that someone like Joe Dante, who makes the movie Matinee, like I know that's not a remake, but um, it's about going to the matinee and seeing all this really cool stuff and, and loving movies, Yes, is different than how we love movies today.
1: Well, I don't think, okay, let's reference Matinee, as you said, the boy who really loved those movies. He, sure, had an appetite, maybe voracious even, but he really loved the movies, and he really Mm -hmm. loved who made the movies. Mm -hmm. He was really fascinated with... But they were presenting to him man a big man ant thing anyway he wasn't just a regular consumer our culture right now is a consumer-based culture in which we consume 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 regular average moviegoer just goes to the movie because of what motivates them a flashy shiny object basically it seems so they're not really cherishing what they're watching
0: well how i see it is How the filmmakers, let's say the the Joe Dantes and the the John Carpenters, how they loved their movies when they were kids. It's more of a, uh, I want to pay homage to these movies. Versus today, a moviegoer, we kind of feel ownership to movies. It's not just this adoration, but it's like, The Thing is my favorite movie and it's mine. And don't you dare mess with it.
1: Sure, yes, I understand. It's like I heard that band before you did.
0: Yes. It's yes, yes, the yes.
1: indie problem from the early 90s. I heard that band way <laughs> before you. So that means that you, as that one singular person who heard that band way before anybody else, has more credibility in liking something. Right. So it's just there basically for your own pat on your own back. to mm-hmm. make You feel good or better than somebody else. It's too competitive still.
0: Yeah, yeah. So when remakes come out, that's the feeling that we have. Like, how dare they take this thing that is mine, that is part of my childhood, and redo it?
1: Well, here's another aspect to that. We sat there and marinated in this movie. They're going to remake Big Trouble in Little China. It it doesn't seem like a movie that needs a remake. It could use a a revisit to that universe, but not a remake in Mm -hmm. my book. Because what happens in my mind, I see a bigger universe because he did a great job world building in that. And you can bring more stuff in later by other filmmakers or even John Carpenter if he wants to go back and make more stories in that setting or that universe. Explore it more without having it to be a remake, I guess reboot, but be a sequel. Requel, whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do that. And my imagination, since it's been informed by this movie already, I feel... I vibe, and I see how I think it should go. Right. And once the remake is made, it usually doesn't hit all of those points. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem that anybody has in the current climate of remakes, because they're anticipating All of those points being missed. Mm -hmm. That is in their own imaginations. And some of it, uh, my imagination being informed by the original type thing, well, yeah, (laughs) I want it to keep going that way. Yeah. So.
0: That and studios and capitalism and just making money.
1: They know this brand. Let's make more of this brand. Yeah,
0: which is what it's really turned into lately, I think.
1: So what's brought all this on?
0: Yeah, all that. (laughs) to say today our podcast is about poltergeist in the darkness of early morning in a new suburban home six-year-old carol ann will be the first to realize they here that thing is in there with my baby and you will never look at your television set the same way again Poltergeist. It knows what scares you. A Steven Spielberg production. Rated PG.
1: Well, obviously that was the first Poltergeist. So let's break down the first Poltergeist for you rather quickly, because if you haven't heard of it by now... I Who mean, are you? You're a child. <laughs> you're a child who hasn't watched movies. <laughs> Not like you're a child, you immature man or woman. Well, maybe you're that too, but it's usually, usually doesn't have to do with movie viewing. So, Poltergeist, 1982, directed by Tobey Hooper, or so they say. We'll get into that later. <laughs> is a movie in which a family has been living in this housing development that the father is the best realtor for He keeps selling these houses in this area. And one fateful day, weird stuff starts happening around the house, centering on this little girl, their daughter. And the mother does these experiments with some of these weird things and the daughter because she starts witnessing crazy zany stuff chairs stacking themselves and she starts sliding things across the floor that's just the little paranormal tease that happens to them eventually the child is taken by whatever the paranormal is into another dimension and well i forgot to mention she initially starts talking to these things through a fuzzy tv set Mm -hmm. after the station goes off the air so she's taken to this other dimension and her parents have to get her back and that's basically it they bring in paranormal investigators and a Creepy little medium lady. She's actually really small, not medium.
0: Medium meaning that she has uh, psychic powers? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. Their house ends up collapsing in on itself with paranormal wackiness.
0: <laughs> wackiness? <laughs> okay.
1: Whackness, maybe. I mean, it was <laughs> the early 80s, you know.
0: Yeah. So Poltergeist is, I, I'm not going to say it's one of my favorite films.
1: You used to say that. I
0: used to say that. That's true. But
1: Back when we met.
0: To clarify, it is a film that is special to me. Because it is the first horror film that I remember watching that made an impression on me. And it's probably why I like ghosts so much.
1: I believe all of that. <laughs> also, side note, it's a Spielberg produced film. Mm-hmm. And that's your first horror movie that you can recollect.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My first horror movie was Jaws. Ah, Spielberg. Mm-hmm. That guy gets around.
0: <laughs> Does he?
1: As far as movies go,
0: <laughs> I think that's an understatement.
1: Yeah, I think so too.
0: Now, when I say I don't have a particular fondness for this film, I don't know that I like it. I want to like it. There are things to like about it, but
1: so. Long ago, when you did say it was your favorite horror movie, in particular, favorite ghost movie. Mm -hmm. Why did you say that then versus now?
0: Perhaps it's because the more you revisit something, it either becomes better to you or it becomes worse. And I think it became worse. Like I started to pick out things that aren't necessarily good about it and I'm not saying it's a bad movie because it's not right I'll tell you that it definitely affected me the most out of any uh paranormal movie that I had seen up until maybe I don't know in my early 20s or so I hadn't realized until recently how much it really kind of shaped who I am and what I'm afraid of no. Which is different now than it was when I was a child because the the thing that really really scared me about this movie It wasn't the swimming pool with the skeletons It wasn't the scary tree. It wasn't the clown doll. It wasn't all these things that like most people attribute to To being scary It was the house imploding on itself I had obviously never even thought about Something like that happening Mm -hmm. And I became paranoid about it
1: About your own house?
0: I did
1: And now that you own a house You're back to that
0: I'm back to it Thanks a lot (laughs) Please don't implode (laughs) It was a legitimate fear for me That my house was going to be sucked in Through my closet And I would look at my closet at night thinking about this that's
1: awesome (laughs) and kind of silly okay so confession i hadn't seen this movie all the way through until we got married so i had seen in passing on television moments i don't really know why in particular like one reason or another i hadn't seen this movie maybe religious household or something but even then I had seen the thing I had seen Jaws but around eight or nine years old I lived in Holland and I was watching television upstairs on this little black and white tv and there was a film clip show like a Siskel and Ebert sort of thing but they showed rather long clips of the movie without showing context around it and the scene that they showed that resonated with me was the scene where the tree which is now a monster tree breaks in through the little boys room and attacks him and then ends up trying to eat him this was very very resonant with me to the point where I had a writing assignment and a broken arm that's coincidental that I had a broken arm and my teacher had to transcribe my story (laughs) So I told her a version of the tree eating the kid scene with other embellishments, such as the sister in the movie. I didn't even mention that it was a movie. My imagination just rolled with all this stuff. The sister found an axe because axes always have something to do with trees. So she takes this axe and she hacks the tree open and this... Slimy, movie-land goo falls out of it, and she reaches up into the hole and grabs her kid brother out. Saves the day. Somewhat, sort of like in the clip, but there's no axe in the clip. There is some goo, but yeah, that's me ripping it off. And my teacher, though, (laughs) who was a very Thatcher-esque, proper British woman, was very...
0: Um, are you sure? (laughs) All right. Yes. She did what with the axe? (laughs) I say...
1: (laughs) So she probably jotted down, this kid needs help.
0: Okay, yeah. I was going to ask, like, was she wary because she recognized the story?
1: No, she didn't. (laughs) She most likely had no clue about this story. Yeah. So there's my little tale. That was in the 80s. -hmm. Right about the time that the movie came out.
0: That reminds me of... When I was in high school, I had to write a poem for one of my English classes. Did
1: you just write Nirvana lyrics?
0: No, but I wrote Replacements lyrics. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, I turned in lyrics to the song Aiken to Be by the Replacements, and Mrs. Crabtree had no clue because I had forgotten to do my homework.
1: Oh, you lamer. (laughs) See, I was like... No, this is like this is a cool scene. I can build on this.
0: Right, right. I at least
1: had some creativity. Yeah, for yeah, this. that's you're what I, just that's, totally full on ripped. It
0: I know. That's what I was going to say. That like at least you were creative. I just wrote down the song. It was like here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a bad kid. Sorry. Bad kid. Sorry. I'm, I'm just kind of a bad. kid.
0: Sorry, Mrs. Crabtree.
1: No, I I, I don't know.
0: Now the FBI is knocking on our door. Plagiarists. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So that's my amazing story, Spielberg's amazing story, (laughs) harkening back to the 80s.
0: Right. So you said something about Spielberg a few minutes ago, and just now you said amazing story, which is obviously...
1: Spielberg had too much on his plate. He was directing, at the same time as this movie, the fantastic horror movie, E.T. Wait. <laughs> horror movie, the original script was a horror movie. Then they changed it. Well, it can kind of be cute if you mm-hmm, focus on mm-hmm. the relationship with the kid and the alien. So they did that, and they changed the alien to this pug-looking thing. And he was focused on that, except he really wanted to do Poltergeist. And so on the credibility that Toby Hooper built... With his Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby Hooper was hired.
0: Sure, because Toby Hooper definitely seems like the kind of director who would make a mainstream horror movie at the time.
1: Nah, not at all. But this was his leg into mainstream Hollywood. Aha. His foot in the door. And there were actually moments in this movie, one moment that is really Toby Hooper ish, and that is the pool with the skeletons in it.
0: I think the entire last sequence of the film.
1: As chaotic as it's it cha- is, yeah, yeah, it seems more Hooperish. Yeah, I would say so too. Especially later when you get to his sort of spoof of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two. It's really like a controlled chaos. Yeah, and so the end of this movie is very controlled chaos, like. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's it really is my favorite part of the movie. I realized that this time watching it, I was like, "Holy crap, this is great!" I was having a hoot of a time, <laughs> but there are some decisions peppered throughout that I'm like, "No." But still, why Spielberg? Why was he mentioned other than being a producer? Because the myth is that he Spielberg actually directed this film, directed this movie, right?
0: Or directed over the shoulder because he of produced Hooper. and he
1: was on set most of the time, right? But Toby Hooper oversaw half of the storyboards while Spielberg oversaw the other half and had the overall final say of all of the storyboards and hooper wasn't an actor's director as such uh-huh. he was a uh, setup point the camera make the scene layout and all that stuff but he didn't really get hands on he and somebody maybe i think it might have been zelda said that he was sort of high all the time <laughs> what? i don't know what drug he was doing but that he had a, an addiction at the time of directing Mm -hmm. this movie. Mm -hmm. So Spielberg, it's said that he directed a huge chunk of this movie, and I can see there are some very Spielbergian moments in this. There's
0: a lot of fog. Like anytime there's fog, I'm like, oh yeah. And beams of light coming through the
1: fog, that's a Spielberg thing. Mm -hmm. Also the camera push in, pull out thing, like in the hallway, that's a Spielberg thing. He uses that in Jaws, he uses that in various other movies. So that's why we mentioned Spielberg. Not just producing this, but kind of moonlight directing this. (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) Being that it's in the early 80s, kids now are probably not going to be familiar with the kinds of technology back then. Like, why does that cell phone have a cord on it?
0: (laughs) I I don't know if it's like that extreme, but yeah. Uh,
1: That's just a regular telephone, kids.
0: (laughs) What? What's a regular telephone? (laughs) Were you in America at the time?
1: No, I was in Holland.
0: You were in Holland, okay. Do you remember network sign-off in the middle of the night?
1: Well, when we came back in 85, yeah, that was still a thing.
0: Okay, because that's how this film opens. The opening credits is the Star Spangled Banner playing over footage of uh, different patriotic images, which are being broadcast by the, the television network back when there were three networks.
1: Yeah, just three.
0: Right. And around, what, like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., they'd always just go off the air for the night. This was before infomercials. Right. Revenue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's definitely something that kids today, like people growing up today... Just
1: can't relate to.
0: Right. And maybe they have questions about that. Like, (laughs) even, really, what is static anymore? Well, because your
1: TV goes blue. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. If there's not a signal, then it's blue. There's no static.
1: Now we have digital dropout. Which is pixels falling out of a screen during transmission. Right, right. But it's not actual static. Also, like, the VHS tape line, the yeah, static and, yeah. and the picture with that. We don't have that. So
0: yeah, there are tons of things in this movie that aren't exactly relatable to our modern times. One that's meant to be funny that actually kind of isn't is when the neighbor is controlling the television with his remote control. What the control. hell is
1: this guy? Hey, what,
0: what the, the hell is going yeah. on? Okay, I apologize. Bye. My neighbor's on the
1: same the remote. Go.
0: Go. Go. Bye, man.
1: We got a good football
0: game going on here. my kids
1: want to watch mr right no, i don't care what you're watching ben just show a little mercy with that thing yeah they have a war that doesn't make sense to me this time i was just like okay just agree to use your hands to turn the dial to the <laughs> channel neither of you use your remote for right now you watch mr rogers you watch your dumb football <laughs> don't change the channels with your remotes because obviously you got the same model and
0: they're on the same the frequency most
1: powerful remotes yeah 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 to change the channels
0: that's something that definitely people have no clue about these days i don't know did that really even happen
1: it happened definitely with garage doors.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: Some people would actually have garage door openers and drive around other people's neighborhoods and <laughs> prank them, sort of. Right. So maybe it's an extension of that just as a joke, or like a lighthearted moment among neighbors.
0: So I guess we're just old people or something? Because um,
1: we remember things. Yeah, We, we, we <laughs> lived in part of it.
0: Isn't that weird how that happens? Like, you, you never figure that you're going to be that old person who is like, back in my day, we had nickel candy and, you know, stuff like that. Then you become that person. Back in my day, we had cartridges that you had to blow into before you had to play
1: them, plugging them into your machine. (laughs) And you had to play the whole damn game and you couldn't save.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And you couldn't even go backwards.
1: Backwards? What's that? Always forward. (laughs) That's my mantra. (laughs) I mean, what's that is my mantra. Not always forward. I think always forward might be a better mantra. (laughs)
0: Okay, old man. What's that? (laughs) Oh, the March of Time.
1: I got one thing to mention about um, a scene in the movie that I never really noticed before, even though I've seen this movie a lot, which actually has a lot to do with autopilot watching. I noticed this canary. Tweety. Tweety, the canary. Mm -hmm. It it dies at the very beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. It's just dead right Mm -hmm. kind of after she starts talking to whatever in the tv it's like a shortly after that scene the the bird's dead that bird a dead canary is symbolic of danger ahead right get out of the mine it's full of natural gases you're gonna die
0: yeah
1: methane usually Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so like get out or too much carbon monoxide from coal get out get out Whoever has never seen this movie, I ruined it for you. But you don't—if you don't expect it—you're like, I'm gonna watch this movie called Paul I don't know. I think it's a family film about a, a family and their silly life together, like cheaper by the dozen or something. But it's called—it's got this German name. I think it's a German import. So they watch with ignorance, and then this little scene would be like, no, 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 no. Something dangerous lies ahead. <laughs> if it had, you know, some ignorant person watching,
0: I don't. I don't think that's going to happen.
1: I don't think so either. People might not know what poltergeist means, but it's malevolent ghost, basically pushes objects around, gets mad.
0: Yeah, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that canary so much in that way before because I, I thought that it just served as a scene to. Um, You you know how you give a child a pet so that they can learn responsibility, they can learn to take care of things, but also, ultimately, when that pet dies, because it inevitably will, it's supposed to teach them about life and death.
1: Grieving and loss. Right. And coping.
0: So when I watch that scene and, you know, there's the, the part where they're putting uh, Tweety in the cigar box and Carol is being a little baby. And she's
1: putting the photo of yeah. the family on there and, she, and then the...
0: The flower and the and little, little blanket or whatever it is. Yeah. You don't really think much past that scene of just here's a little girl who now has to deal with a real situation. But, yeah, it is kind of a harbinger you can definitely think of it that way it
1: hadn't been established that it was alive in any previous other scenes Mm -hmm. so we just assumed because the reaction that the mother gave that it was a perfectly healthy bird and something had to have killed it Mm -hmm. that's what the story context is telling us and i never really paid attention to that which is the autopilot viewing that Uh i mentioned we watch things a lot because we like them because we want to watch it. But do we really watch it? Right. Do we really notice what's going on? I know that the first viewing you usually don't. Mm-hmm. You're like on a ride, a roller coaster ride or something. And it, you have to really pay attention if you're going to pick things up all the way. And you, some movies just don't lend to picking things up all the way. But that little note, the dead canary, what the heck? Why did I miss that so many times? Mm-hmm. Autopilot.
0: Yep. So yeah, talking about watching it on autopilot, the, the 1982 Poltergeist is a film, like I said, I've seen so many times that I don't necessarily pick out certain things about it. Like, I, I guess maybe in a way I take things for granted with it.
1: Sure.
0: It's not a film that I necessarily think about why things happen or what kind of theme that is, is trying to be presented. Sure. But this time I was watching it and I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm really going to think about this movie as I'm watching it because uh, so many times it's just kind of on, mm-hmm. you know? So what really bothers me about this movie, and it, this is a theme, is the real estate development company that Craig T. Nelson's character works for. And obviously they're the bad guys, okay? But, it, but it's not like...
1: They're not wringing their hands... They're very, like, cavalier. That's it. They're very cavalier about their nefarious nature. And it's just one guy representing Mm -hmm.
0: them. Mm -hmm.
1: And he's just so casual about everything. Yeah. And he seems kind of nice.
0: Yeah, right? But at the heart of it, he's one of those guys who's Mm -hmm. just like, oh yeah, it's just business. Like, this is going to be the bottom line and that's what I care about. Like, I don't necessarily care too much about people's feelings or like honoring people's feelings so much and that is why this whole thing starts is
1: they found a solution to their problem
0: yeah and the problem is that the the land that they bought to develop the subdivision on is a cemetery you son of a bitch you left the bodies and you only moved the headstones you only moved the headstones
1: you apparently the biggest cemetery in the world (laughs) yeah like
0: acres and acres of cemetery like
1: i've never that's bizarre to me actually right but this entirely huge cemetery they're like uh let's just move the headstones and leave the bodies Mm because nobody's gonna know except i have a problem with that though they have to build foundations mm -hmm. and you have to flatten and dig the earth yeah 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 so i don't know how low they gotta get Mm-hmm. Six feet lower than the ground that was already there or yeah, more I don't know. or whatever. So I'm just like, hmm, okay guys, I guess in the script nobody asked a question, <laughs> but I'm asking that question and nobody can answer me because that movie is old.
0: Well they do they don't reference basements in this film. Right. It doesn't seem that there are. But you still there's attics. Yeah, yeah. But you you still have to do the foundation, like you said. You have to dig a little bit. And they're digging a swimming pool and blah blah blah. So like obviously, you know, they might run into some caskets or something. Yes. You know, a lot of people think that it's a an Indian burial ground story. But it's not. It's not. Like they mention that in in, They
1: even mention It's not like it's an Indian burial ground.
0: Yeah, which for some reason is just stuck in people's heads that like that's what this story is. And I don't know what I'm thinking, really. and We're not talking about Poltergeist 2 or Poltergeist 3, but in Poltergeist 2 there is the Native American man. So I think maybe people are just connecting some dots that aren't there.
1: Yeah, probably. Well, I actually think it's a Stephen King thing. And I don't know at what point did he write... His Indian burial ground sort of haunted stuff. I don't know when he wrote Pet Cemetery.
0: I, I don't really either. I mean, I really love Stephen King, but I'm not a connoisseur in Stephen King. Right, you King, don't know so, the dates yeah, and stuff. I'm, like that. I'm not the person to ask.
1: But I think he, even if he wrote it later, I think the zeitgeist where everybody gets the idea that this movie and movies like this are all Indian burial ground comes from Stephen King pushing it in the foreground with Pet Cemetery. Uh. Other pop culture myths. So as I mentioned before with the tree scene, how influential that scene was on my little mind, I never saw the end of it. And I've seen the end of it many times, but also autopilot viewing permitted that I skipped a a moment, which was this time I really realized that a big, inexplicable tornado comes by and kind of saves the day. (laughs) Yanking the tree out of the ground and taking it away. Ruining some property, like knocking down their fence. But it goes Uh away after Robbie is saved by his dad.
0: Wait, so it takes the tree out of the ground? Yes. See, I didn't even notice that. Like, I noticed the tornado, I think, also for the first time. Like, it's this...
1: Silly animation. It's
0: pitch black
1: yeah it's got fuzzy edges like
0: it really looks like someone used that that like round brush thing in ms paint and just <laughs> did a squiggle that looks like a cone
1: somebody who knows how to draw that <laughs>
0: yeah
1: i know how to animate i've got ms paint yeah. i know it's a future device
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. i could
1: still use it Um, Because I am from the future.
0: I don't know why I hadn't ever noticed that before. And, like, I think I was um, too...
1: Caught up in the action of the dad catching the kid.
0: Yeah, that I didn't notice anything about the tree. So the tree, like, disappears for the rest of the film? It's
1: yanked out of the ground and taken by the... Really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. So
0: what? What force? Like, I mean, like, where did this tornado come from? Like, what's the purpose of it? Like, is it like? Uh, it's God. A, a divine intervention? Yeah,
1: it's it's a Deus ex machina. Do you which think so? God? Do
0: you think so? Really? The
1: God, the scriptwriter?
0: Huh. Well, that's weird. You know what? I hate that tree, by the way.
1: The, the tree in this movie is ugly and knobby, but totally man-made.
0: It's so fake looking, and it actually takes me out of the story. Like, uh, even when Robbie's in bed and you see the, the tree outside the window, I'm like, that is so fake. <laughs> like, it looks like... It's set decoration. It, yeah, it looks like a tree that is in, like, McDonald's Playland or something. Slash like, like, Star Trek. I don't Trek. know. It's just...
1: An early Star Trek episode. <laughs> We've got to stop these tree they're attacking us with their specs.
0: Man, it's just, it's really bothersome to me. And I understand uh, special effects at the time and, and actually having to use movie props and all, all that stuff. But man, I wish that tree was more realistic.
1: Yeah, I do too. So that that big ending that I love? yeah. Is, that's is completely zany Starts off in a uh-huh. really ridiculous way
0: Yeah, okay So after Zelda Rubenstein clears the house This house is clean They think that they've cleared the house But in actuality They've only gotten Carol Ann back They haven't gotten rid of the poltergeist
1: But she claims it's clear
0: Right So the family is definitely going to be moving anyway Because, I mean, why wouldn't you? You see them start to pack up the moving truck. Yes. Jobeth Williams and Craig P. Nelson are having a discussion. Oh, what a day. Smell that mimosa.
1: Yeah, well, I think you better cut yourself a bouquet and take it with you because we're not staying.
0: I know. We worked so hard for this. A thousand beautiful memories.
1: Honey, I gotta go to the office. I'm gonna pick up some stuff. Just clean up a few things, okay?
0: Okay.
1: I'm gonna be back early.
0: So we're leaving tonight for sure?
1: Yeah, we are. I tell you what, if the kids get sleepy, just let them conk out till I get home.
0: There are movers there packing, packing a, truck. a truck. It's not just like oh hey we rented a U-Haul and we have it for a couple of days so we'll just
1: ease in the yeah, stuff. No, yeah. people are moving things people out of moving. the garage, yes. out of the house. Into the truck
0: Yes And then immediately Cut to What is Joe Beth Williams doing? She's going to go dye her hair And because, take a bath Yeah And her children are playing with all their toys There are some boxes around the house But mostly They are not packed Whatsoever
1: The bathroom's completely as it was The kids' bedrooms Still have their toys And their clothes And everything mm-hmm. In their bedrooms Their beds Everything Nothing Is prepped to move
0: so how are they possibly going to be leaving the it's house
1: It's also that night?
0: dark out. Yeah. It's kind of ridiculous and it makes me laugh.
1: But I've noticed that every single time, by the way. And you did too. Yeah. When you showed this to me the very first time so many years ago. So they're moving, but not moving. However, that said, that whole end sequence is bonkers. I love it. After the bath, she gets yanked around and thrown on the ceiling. Uh And now this movie was going to be rated R. There was no PG-13 at the time, which Mm -hmm. would be appropriate for the rating now. But it was going to be rated R. For all the horror elements. The really mm-hmm. horrific elements, like the rubberhead guy ripping his face off. Right. Which is a bad special effect and it's kind of funny now. Yeah. But it freaked people out. They are like, oh my god, when
0: I was a kid, he ripped his face off. Which is funny because that didn't affect me at all. Like no. I like I have no memory of that. Like seriously, the only memory I have is the entity going down the stairs okay. and the house imploding. Like that is what scared me. I maybe did not even have a reaction to the gore in this movie.
1: <laughs> You're like, oh, stakes really do have <laughs> gelatin monster goo. Yeah, sure. And maggots flying out of it. Sure. That's cool. Also, why is the guy putting a steak just on a countertop without <laughs> a plate?
0: Is that his steak? Is he even asking the, the no, family? No, he just goes
1: in the refrigerator and gets a steak out of the fridge. And it's not cooked. What is he going to do? Oh, he's going to cook it. He gets a skillet and then he turns around the chicken leg in his mouth and the steak is inching on itself along the countertop and he's like, Whoa. And this is the skeptical guy. Mm-hmm. Who later refuses to come back because he hallucinated ripping his own face open. <laughs> a puppet of his own face. Yeah. So, I mean, that scene, silly. All these horror elements that are kind of gross and gory or, like, scary bits. It's a monster! Like, this giant monster head yells at Craig T. Nelson. Uh-huh. It's going to be rated R, but on appeal, they got it down to PG. But I don't think they cut anything. Spielberg had that power.
0: Yeah. he could get away with anything, Almost.
1: So, JoBeth falls into this mud pit that They want to fill with a pool. And there's these skeletons that pop up. Now the myth says, and this has been validated, I think. Yes. That they were actual skeletons, medical cadavers.
0: Mm -hmm. And they didn't tell her. And
1: they didn't tell her that the skeletons were real and all that stuff. But looking at them, they're sort of fleshy. Mm -hmm. And she's in the mud and muck and water with them. But they also look kind of tailored, like they're designed. Yeah. So I'm wondering if they were designed, if they just put like latex swabs over like a bleached skeleton type of thing. Maybe. Uh, This is stuff that I've never known. I knew about the skeletons, but I never knew how they actually set up the skeletons and put clothes on them and whatever, because they're all supposed to be out of coffins and whatever. And
0: if so, if they did that, the the makeup effects artists who were doing it.
1: Did they know that they were skeletons, real skeletons? Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I have no clue.
0: I mean, that would be kind of distressing to me. I mean... uh... Maybe.
1: Maybe. I mean, there are real skeletons in schools all the time. Yeah, and yeah. there are actual full skeletons uh, in somebody's classroom. So yeah. I I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I anyway. would at
0: least think it's weird.
1: Yeah, I, w- I would think it's weird. Especially if, if they're actually fleshy cadavers that they just put clothes on and threw yeah. them in the mud. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea.
0: So I wanted to ask you, because I can't think of too many before this. But is this the first film that features paranormal and inv- Investigators, like in a sciencey way.
1: I'm gonna say no. You know, Legend of Hell House and stuff like that, and The Haunting, right? Where those are professors involved.
0: Yeah, and it's n- it's not really a um, investigation. It's more of a, an experiment.
1: The experiment in fear, sort of thing. Yeah,
0: the, in those situations, that's what. That is versus this is a we have to bring in all this equipment and try to save this family.
1: Well, also in 1982, a movie called the entity came out
0: uh-huh okay and that
1: yeah. actually had to deal with a very similar group of paranormal investigators but they have more high-tech equipment and they deal with a demon entity uh-huh. that
0: i know that i've seen that like, what i really just kind of remember the story of uh, what happened to that woman in that not so much the the actual um
1: they try to make the entity corporeal so they have a bunch right. of sci-fi okay, stuff yeah, okay. or sciencey equipment which ends up being a bit more sci-fi than science okay but yeah those are uh like a university professor and mm-hmm. his crew doing this stuff. So it's very similar to the investigators in this movie. Okay. But before that, I think it's just those Hell House type movies.
0: Okay. Because I was thinking maybe that being such a huge part of culture, Poltergeist sort of put paranormal investigations into the forefront.
1: It certainly was a germ. Mm-hmm. But by the mid-90s is when that stuff actually started taking over with reality TV Yeah. So instead of, oh no, the 70s was really big on those In Search of shows and stuff like that too. So they had profiles on the Warrens and all that BS.
0: Mm. So Andrew, I think we're ready now. We can start talking about Poltergeist. The human mind is powered by electrical currents. Some believe that when those currents refuse to die, they become ghosts. And the most powerful and most violent become tergeists They're here tergeist <laughs> Something's on mom
1: BG3 Oh, oh, the remake.
0: <laughs> right. When we originally had the concept for this Podcast that we're doing, I think that we had only wanted to talk about the remake of Poltergeist. Like, it was going to be about the remake.
1: But you have a problem when you have remakes.
0: Yeah, like we were saying earlier, you can't talk about a remake without talking about the original material. Or at
1: least thinking about it. Yeah, it's
0: difficult because...
1: So it's an elephant in the room. So we're acknowledging the elephant. Yes.
0: So 2015 produced... The remake of Poltergeist.
1: This has been in like a tease of work for a while. In fact, Juliet Snowden and Styles White, who have worked on many other movies, uh, some scary movies, The Possession, Ouija knowing boogeyman. They're a genre stalwarts, really. And they were hired to actually do a poltergeist draft, and they did. And then the project fell through, so we don't have their poltergeist. I have no idea what their poltergeist would have been. And then this was picked back up by a completely different group of producers. One of them, Sam Raimi.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, this is a Ghost House production.
1: And it's directed by a guy named Gil Kennan, who's a Israeli-British director who previously worked on one other scary movie. What's for that? kids. Monster house
0: oh that's a good movie it's pretty cool huh yeah i remember liking it yeah
1: it had a lot of pathos it had a lot of development and fun characters and it's cg animation it was odd for cg animation because characters are not usually designed the way that they did him for major blockbuster stuff anyway it was pretty good and had a good cast mm-hmm. so he gets tapped for this and i think overall he did a pretty good job
0: yeah this remake gets a lot of bad press It gets a lot of harsh criticism. I can understand why conceptually, because, you know, arguably every remake is unnecessary. But this one really is an unnecessary remake. Really, why do we need...
1: Another stab at the poltergeist. There's already three movies with the name and a TV show that really kind of didn't have anything to do with it except by name alone. Mm -hmm. Name recognition... Is why.
0: Yeah, so really, this is the case of a remake that is made solely for the purpose of trying to make money.
1: Off of a new generation who never saw or only heard about or whatever,
0: and that's a boring corny movie. Oh my god, I don't want to watch Poltergeist. Ugh. Yeah, you know what? It is boring. You know, I didn't mention that before, but one of the reasons why I don't necessarily like it anymore is because it puts me to sleep. The original Poltergeist, there's so much in it that is so tiresome to me, and I think mainly it's the score and the pacing.
1: There's a lot of editing choices that I don't quite agree with that I think hinder the film mm-hmm. that's got a lot to do with pacing scenes that need to be rearranged and stuff like this just to make the story flow better so mm-hmm. there's a lot of like lags and editing obstacles so the flow doesn't work
0: sure so this remake there is the capability of making the story better and more efficient
1: I think this one is actually quite efficient everything just moves along at a very pleasant clip it doesn't lag so much
0: right right
1: now the story as you heard before it's very similar but the difference is between the two movies as far as the synopsis goes is the previous movie poltergeist 82 they lived in that house for a very long time very long being over four years
0: because carol ann was born in that house
1: right this movie they just moved to a new to them house it's a foreclosed house in this neighborhood that they think is okay. And they just move there because the father of the family, Sam Rockwell, he's been laid off from his job. And so they had to move from wherever they lived before to a more affordable place. And the rest of the movie kind of unfolds similarly. Not everything's the same, but it's a similar story.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, story-wise, it is. As far as what this remake does better, in my opinion... It focuses on the family more. They're both stories about families, obviously. Sure. 2015 Poltergeist. As they're looking around the house before they sign the papers on it, we follow the son, the little boy named Griffin.
1: He's a bit of a scaredy cat. Yeah. A nervous kid.
0: The role of the son in this film is much larger.
1: Much more developed. Yes. He's an actual character than just... Well, the other one was actually kind of a realistic kid too. He was Not, kind of
0: just like a side character. He was just really. a side character.
1: He's just supporting over there.
0: Yeah. So already we're thrown into this film is going to be more about the family unit and yeah. how they interact with each other, what they mean to each other. Now in the. First Poltergeist in 1982, a problem that I have with it is that the kids, other than Carol Ann, like might as well not even be in the movie. Like they're kind of inconsequential to the story. Like they're just there to like offer a little bit of help every now and then. Or
1: be a victim of a monster.
0: Yeah, it it doesn't feel like it's a cohesive family unit together where they're working together.
1: Each character needs their own story you could Mm -hmm. theoretically edit this film around each character and they would each have their own little film from their perspective Mm -hmm. and it would be a cohesive arc the little boy has to become courageous Mm -hmm. the little girl has to survive Mm -hmm. this ordeal the big sister ends up becoming a nicer person by the end (laughs) yeah
0: yeah and in the first poltergeist they're just all very static characters like there's no depth to them whatsoever, and you, you just really kind of don't care about what happens. Now, when we were watching the remake just now, you asked me the question after they get reunited, they get Maddie, who is the caravan of, yeah. of this story, after they get her back from the astral plane. You asked me, Why do I feel so much right now?
1: Yeah, how did I get the feels from yeah. this scene where they're just washing the gook off of the two mm-hmm. kids mm-hmm. and the bathtub and they're all really relieved when the kids wake up.
0: The reason is because the family unit works together in this story in such a more powerful way than the first Poltergeist that you really feel something. It is a victory not only for the parents. Like so in Poltergeist 82, you have Joe Beth and Craig T Nelson who are they're working together to get their daughter back. Sure. At the point where they're trying to save her, They've already shipped the kids off to Grandma's house. It is not like a team effort. Now, you might argue that maybe kids would just be in the way or it might be scary for them or something. So, yes, okay, validated. Go to Grandma's house for a while.
1: This story doesn't even give them that option.
0: It really is. Every person in this family is affected by what's happening to them, and they want to survive it together.
1: And they want to solve it. Yes. And that's, that's actually really important. Especially with the little boy's arc, because he's such a little weenie baby, yeah. and then he becomes this, like, a little man at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And it's really great. You go, like, yeah, dude. And it's actually a believable arc.
0: Mm-hmm. And it makes them stronger as a family. Now, the other thing is what each of these films says about masculinity and femininity. Do tell. In 1982's Poltergeist, how are the men presented? The, like, every man in this story, how are they presented? You have, first of all, Craig T. Nelson as the father. He's a pretty good guy. But the men around him, like his friends, like when they're watching football, they're pretty dumb.
1: They're a bunch of goobers.
0: Yeah, which is kind of a, a problem that a lot of films or or TV shows or even commercials will portray men as these just kind of bumbling idiots.
1: Sitcom dads.
0: Yeah. Which isn't fair to mankind in general. The same way as objectifying a woman because of her body or saying that she's a dumb blonde or something like that. Like It's the same type of thing. Like stereotyping and generalizing. And it's just not fair.
1: And it's become shorthand. Yeah. In the 70s sitcoms you had really complicated characters with Sanford and and mm-hmm. Archie Bunker they were freaking complicated yeah, yeah yeah. and they weren't just Jack Tripper where it's just some guy trying to weasel his way into whatever and also be bumbling and as charming as John Ritter is that's a super shallow and possibly even damaging stereotype of a horny dude man yeah let's now imagine him having a wife put him in a sitcom and now the wife has ammunition and to rag him about when he was young and Now he's just a stupid guy hammering things into boards. Anyway, sitcoms. In the 80s is where that developed. Late 80s. 90s really hit it home with dumb dad stereotypes.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, the other stereotype in this film is the construction workers, or or the guys who are coming to dig their pool.
1: Yeah, played by one of the Predator dudes.
0: They're really sleazy.
1: And the guy who's the most sleazy was an ex-porn star. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, he was the guy from Predator. The one who was making all the cat calls, he was in Predator. He was the guy who took the knife and stood on the log and was like, doing all the big old, I'm a Native American, going to cut you with my knife. And then he gets killed by the Predator. Okay. Okay
0: yeah he's he's the one he's definitely creepy he's he's creeping on dominic dunn's character the a older sister daughter. And, yeah and, and she flips him off and, and i mean that's cool whatever the but. mom's
1: really proud of that
0: <laughs> yeah i mean i probably would be too also i mean it is a stereotype like you know men aren't like that or in my experience in my life all the men i've known and maybe i've had the privilege of knowing really awesome men but i don't think that that's the case i think that men are a lot better than and their reputations are, especially these days. I know that there are several cases that, you know, are mm-hmm. exceptions to that. Like, I'm not going to discount the fact that there are creeps in the world.
1: Yeah, sometimes one might catcall at Michelle Pfeiffer's name as it's projected on a movie. Theater screen. It's embarrassing as it was. Those men do exist. Metal hairband culture. Yeah. I'm with you. I personally, other than that one person who I happen to be related to, doesn't catcall, hasn't catcalled. Wouldn't cat call. like? Why, why would they?
0: Yeah. So I'm um, I'm really not sure why that's part of the story. I guess it's just for comedy, but like I don't think that it really serves too much of a purpose other than this is kind of sad too because when we were talking about the children and how they're static characters, there's not much development or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like the, what is presented to us about Dominique Dunn in this film is that she's a little tart. Okay. Yeah, she has a hickey. You know, she's on the phone talking to some boy you know so like i don't think that that's
1: i you know i didn't pick that up that she was more see i didn't get that from this character you know that you pointed out she's a little teenager who hormonal right yeah wants to have her fun but i did get that she was feisty and that she could maybe hold her own
0: I don't know really what the purpose of that scene is. Like it almost feels like it's just there in a way that's kind of shaming her. Like like every presentation of her in this film is like kind of shameful to me. Dad wants us to stay at the holiday inn on I seventy four. Oh yeah, I remember that place. And I I think it's really unfortunate how that's the only presentation of her because she's just a a hormonal teenage girl. Hmm. But to go back to uh, representations of, of men, in the remake, Sam Rockwell is a struggling dad. He has just been laid off. He doesn't feel good about that. I mean, like, why would you? He has all the pressure from his family, not so much his wife, but like really his kids. They want so much from him and he's trying his best to provide for them. They're moving to this house that's maybe not up to standards for them or what they're used to, but he's doing his best. The oldest daughter has a little hissy fit because her phone got fried for whatever reason, so she needs a new phone. Poltergeist.
1: Poltergeist messed yeah, up her phone. Yeah, she, but
0: she doesn't know that.
1: Right, nobody really knows that, but she comes down after some yeah. poltergeist activities. is like,
0: Griffin, I told you not to touch my phone. I didn't touch your phone. Then why is it fried?
1: How should I know? I need a new phone. Oh, you do, huh? No more phones, honey. This isn't a luxury item, Dad. I mean, it's a necessity.
0: Yeah, so she's really mean and superficial at that point. So even though they're struggling, they don't have a lot of money right now. They don't know when their money is going to be coming in again. Like, he he needs to find a new job. He goes out to the mall and just maxes out his credit cards and buys them a bunch of stuff that they don't need. Like, he gets her a new phone. He gets his son this cool drone. He buys his wife some expensive earrings and he's really just trying to compensate.
1: He does buy something very useful. Two things useful, but one thing definitely that they needed. And that was a vermin trap. Yeah. Because they have a crazy squirrel in the attic. Yeah. But the drone ends up becoming very useful later on. Sure. But he's doing this because he feels bad. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is a commentary on him feeling useless and worthless. And he has two credit cards that don't work. And he tries the last one and he buys cool stuff for the family Mm -hmm. because Because it's a salve, but that salve is not going to treat the problem, it's just going to treat a symptom. Yeah. And the problem itself is that he was let go for no good reason. They were downsizing.
0: So I, I think that that's really a problem that isn't addressed too much. That you know for years and years men have been head of household. You know culturally and you know that has changed a lot over the years, where it's an, an equal thing. Like the husband and the wife, they combine their their incomes, or you know there's not really a head of the household so much anymore versus you know uh, 40 years ago. or, oh, right. You, you know what I mean? So this is
1: 25 years ago.
0: Now. How However, that does not mean that men still do not feel cultural pressure to provide for their families, to be the breadwinner, to be the person who takes care of everybody and makes everything better and safe. The protector. Uh, Yeah. uh, And how
1: do you protect? You protect by having money. Right. You throw money at a problem, it goes away. Right. That's... That's how it's typically been done.
0: So uh, as far as how females are represented in these two movies, there's a dichotomy here. And... In the 1982 version, Jo Beth Williams, as the mother, she's a stay-at-home mom, and there's no question about it. Right. That's just how it is. That's how it was back then. And, yeah. And, you know, I mean, some people are stay-at-home moms now, and that's totally fine because it's, you know... Your, Heck yeah. It's your choice.
1: Super important.
0: Right. If you're able to live on one income and uh, you want to stay home and take care of your kids, that's an awesome choice for you. And if you want to work, that's awesome, too. But in 1982, it was more of a reality for a a lot of women to be stay-at-home mothers, like, that was just, you know, what you did.
1: And after the kids become teenagers where they can latch key home, then the mom might get some work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If she felt like it type of thing.
0: Now, whereas, you know, over time, it's developed into, like I said, you have that choice if you're able to have that choice. And the mother in the remake, she's a writer. So she works from home, but she's not really writing
1: it's kind of a writer's at the block time. situation. Yeah,
0: so she offers to go back to work, and the father, Sam Rockwell, is like. Oh, get with that? Come on. You don't want to do that. You leave me alone with these monsters? What? I need your underwear. Look at these. These are sad. Your underwear is sad? Yes, my underwear is sad. Well, mine are very happy right now, so get over here. You can't keep holding out for something at your own salary. Why can't I'm I just look that. for something?
1: Because we agreed. I'd work so you could write your book. That's what we agreed about. <sighs> I'm
0: not writing my book. You will when the kids go no, back to don't school. don't put this on the kids. is saw me. Hey, I'm going to find something, okay? You got to trust me. I just think it's a really interesting dichotomy between the two. It goes to show how much they both care about their family.
1: Now, Sam's performance here... I heard some interviews in which um, I'm reading into it because you can't hear how he says it but I read some interviews in which he was kind of like yeah this is just like a watered down family film whatever but I I don't know if he was actually saying this is a film about a family or if he was saying like this is like peanut butter this is no big deal (laughs) if the first movie was a steak this is like a peanut butter sandwich which actually as I read that that's how I read it It it's no big deal this is like a kids movie whatever and the movie didn't perform very well in the theater because people didn't want to remake of Poltergeist and all that stuff. So his words hold that kind of weight, I think. But his performance, if he didn't believe in the job, and he just took the job as a way to earn money, which sometimes actors do that, Mm -hmm. he is still putting in the performance of a vulnerable man who is at cultural odds with what's expected of him as a man in the traditional sense, bringing home the bacon sort of thing, and feeling like a failure because of it. Now, all of that you can read, not necessarily even in the context of everything, but in just how he presents his face and his line delivery. I found that to be very interesting. And instead of bickering husband and wife, now the first family didn't have a no, bickering didn't. husband and wife. They were a husband and wife team. They were yeah, they, had a they good were cool together and they were lame together. Mm-hmm. They were everything together, in equal halves. That's good. And they kept that in this film. He does the bad thing of bringing home too much frivolous gifts with money that he doesn't have to spend, and she confronts him, but she's also understanding.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You can tell that they do have a loving relationship.
1: Nurturing without enabling hmm And that was very interesting. You now I have a friend who watched this movie after my recommendation. And he's like, was well, it lame? Was well, it lame? It doesn't need to be remade. Right? No. It doesn't need to be remade. But I'm telling you, this is not a lame movie. And he watched it and he was like, it was better than I expected. Yeah. Which is always what people tell me. Yeah. When they expect a the movie to be an absolute turd and they get a good movie out of it. Yeah. They... Very often refuse to say that was a good movie. <laughs> they say the phrase it was better than I expected.
0: Yeah. You know what I really love about the remake is Jared Harris.
1: It's my favorite Jared Harris.
0: I have a strange crush on him. I'm not going to shy away from that.
1: Mm hmm. You have a strange crush on every gay, you have a strange crush. Let, <laughs> let me go down the list. Javier Bardem, mm-hmm. Michael Fassbender, sort of. Various soccer players. <laughs> International.
0: It's called football.
1: I know, but I mean, we're talking about. Yeah. I know it's the internet. It's also international. So footy players, and then Jared Harris. You have so many types.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know what? I'm not trying to reduce a man to like the the fact that I find him attractive. Um, because I think that's a double standard that a lot of women do. Like, you know, you can't, uh, how dare a man objectify a woman by saying she's attractive and and then turn around and... and Well,
1: I don't believe that saying a woman is attractive equals objectification. That's just the nature of things. I'm a human being. Human beings find other human beings attractive.
0: But I am careful about it because I don't want to uh, misrepresent what I'm saying about somebody.
1: Just because I would find a person attractive doesn't mean I want to have sex with them. That's true. That's how it should be acknowledged. Like, my default setting isn't thinking about having sex with her.
0: Sure, and also the same way if if I say I have a crush on a man, I'm not saying that I would like to spend the night with him in that way. But Jared Harris is uh, a reality TV star in this film. He has a ghost hunting show, or a paranormal hunting show. I don't know, it's not made 100% clear what his show is. It's most likely
1: just demon, paranormal, ghosty stuff. I'm Carrigan Burke. And I'm here to clean
0: house. He definitely hands it up for the camera for his show, but he is in reality a medium.
1: And I would say he is probably a medium too. You think he's short? Yeah. Well, there's the skeptical paranormal investigator in this movie who is six foot six. And when Jared Harris walks into the scene and they're all like, what? what? At that one scene where the TV does something wacky, uh-huh. six foot six stands up and he towers among. Everyone, and Jared Harris is to his shoulder. So I think Jared Harris just might be a medium.
0: Okay, okay.
1: That's another size pun, people, and yeah. I'm talking about a shirt size.
0: Okay, so Jared Harris in this movie offers so much more personality to the role of the psychic than Zelda Rubinstein does in the first Poltergeist.
1: All due respect, I do not think Zelda Rubenstein is a very good actor.
0: She's just a lady who has a strange voice and an interesting stature.
1: Who's been totally turned into a legend because of Poltergeist.
0: Right, and Teen Witch as well, but mostly Poltergeist.
1: Yeah, I don't think a lot of people except you maybe know about Teen Witch.
0: Everybody knows about Teen Witch. What are you talking about?
1: You want to know more about Teen Witch? Go listen to the episode on What Did We Just Watch. Go, go to that episode. It features both of us, and I'm being tortured into watching Teen Witch. Go. It's in our back catalog. Go on. Now that you've done that... Heh, ridiculous, huh? So... Zelda Rubenstein.
0: Yeah, I don't think she's a good actor. I don't think that her role was particularly fleshed out. I mean, she she's a little sassy Yeah, it.
1: cocky, very... I,
0: I just, I don't like her in Poltergeist. I really don't. And, you know, maybe I'm going to get condemned for that by a lot of people, but that's well, fine too. I
1: don't like her because I don't like Tood. And I also don't like her, I'm talking about the character, because she's a crap medium. She's she's adequate. I'll say adequate because she doesn't finish the job.
0: Yeah, she says the house is clear, but it's obviously not clear. Like I think it's do you think that she just forgot <laughs> that there are spirits in the house? I mean, I mean the the number 1 job was yes, get Carol Ann back, but like I mean
1: me, just after she, they got her back, she's like this house is clear. Like, and no, it's it's not.
0: It's yeah, I mean they the the spirits are still there they're still waiting to go to the light or you know whatever so i mean i it's written that way to further the story so they can have that really cool chaotic scene at the end and then the but house it, also at
1: that moment after that moment it gets this like really like i thought this movie was over
0: yeah and and, that's, and then it
1: just keeps going and that's part of the sleepy part yeah
0: that, that's un- the newest more
1: efficient version
0: it is the same situation of like yes, they get the daughter back, they get Maddie back, and now that they, they they assume that like okay, we're we're done here. We can, but they're we can not go now.
1: moving out. They're leaving that night. And they're yeah. all in the car and they're about to leave.
0: This house is clean. It isn't though. Of course it is, sweetheart. You help the spirits go into the light. But they didn't. Then you you have more special effects, a, a little bit less of a chaotic scene, I guess. Like it's not. Um, I mean, it's different. It's obviously different. Um,
1: oh, yeah, it's different. It's a bit more, um, I, I would say, and not in a bad way, but choreographed. Everything is really yeah. a lot more s- seemingly, even though I said storyboards and they had a bunch of them on the original. It seems like this one is more graphically designed storyboards, mm-hmm. like angles and yeah. camera angles and whatever.
0: And you have Jared Harris's character. Like, uh, this means something to him. Like, this, this is um, because he's the reality TV guy who's just... Uh, faking it the entire time, being on television. Now here's his chance to actually do something about this presence that... Well,
1: okay, so the presence is actually a horde of souls. All these angry, bitter souls. Uh Uh-huh. Who have been jilted from their graves. Whatever. I don't know. They, this is a ghost story. Ghost stories don't necessarily make sense. But they're all mad. And they all uh-huh. want to go to the light. And they've been refused it for some reason. But it takes a pure creature. And that's where Carol Ann and that's where Maddie come in. Uh-huh. They're at a certain age in which innocence is always innocent. Yeah. And so that equals like a beacon of light. And if they can get her to go through the, through the light, then they can follow her. Because she's so bright. Mm-hmm. I guess. hmm Sounds so dumb saying it, but that's the story here. And it seems that Harris, his character has had a run-in with something like this before and he mentions it to the kids because they're talking about his scars and he shows them his awfully mangled leg ew
0: what What happened to you you? portugal 2003 there was a monastery in the forest of Bosaco with a particularly nasty entity so he
1: goes into the porthole to save the day basically sacrificing himself yeah. to use the gift that he has, or what he would say, I wouldn't say that, probably a curse maybe, because he's been kind of squandering it for TV. Yeah. And now he's he really wants to use it for good. Yeah. And this would be for good, because this family shouldn't have this happening to them. No family should have this happening mm-hmm. to them.
0: So there's a, a purpose to this character, and, and that's something that I always welcome. You know, I'm always talking about characters and the story and how they develop and
1: motivations
0: yeah i don't want to say that poltergeist 82 is a bad movie because it's not a bad movie but i really think that it has problems that this remake addresses and fixes Mm
1: -hmm. also the relationship between the paranormal investigators from the college and jared harris that's pretty cool The lady used to be his
0: wife right
1: and it's really cute how she performs this like very subtle It's, I guess, the camera's on her, so it's not so subtle, but this subtle uh, sort of primping and like trying to look cute for him Mm -hmm. because she knows he's about to arrive, and their acknowledgement of each other, and then their bickering is even cute.
0: Yep. Why do you do that? What? You tell your old war stories, you make yourself sound like an old man. Comes with the territory. We age in dog years. Do you have kids, Mr. Burke? Sadly, no. My wife didn't think it was a good idea, given our line of work. It wasn't just the work. Oh, you... the, the two of you were uh... briefly. We were young and stupid. The only one of us was stupid. Ah, don't be so hard on yourself. I was irresistible back then.
1: <laughs> Relationship girls, Bigger or cute.
0: So, yeah, I really am disappointed when people say that the remake is a bad movie or that it doesn't have, like, the same heart or, or the same type of feeling, like, that the original movie did. And, you know, the only thing that I think is missing and is that Spielberg feel.
1: The kind of... Lensing.
0: Yeah, that early eighties yeah. Spielberg ambiance, Ambiance. Yay, that's a good word. Ambiance. Yeah. People say what happened to the sense of wonder that movies from the '80s apparently had.
1: Spielberg was behind them all.
0: Yeah, so the remake doesn't have that ambiance. Right, and it doesn't have what Toby Hooper was good at, which is that kind of yeah. weirdness. Yeah, it is lacking in those categories. Well, all
1: right, you said special effects thing. There, there are two things that I want to talk about that I just get kind of annoyed with about this movie, and that is the producers insisting. And they did insist to have nods or earmarks to the original movie. Right. That are supposed to be a wink to the audience. Like, remember the original movie? And they don't need them.
0: Of course I remember the original movie. Why do you have to show me something that is exactly the same from the original movie? um,
1: So they don't show you something exactly the same, but it's supposed to be in place of that exactly the same. So he washes his face and his crap starts happening to his face in a reflection on a sink spot. Bout. I get it. They were trying to be more subtle. They didn't want to have him rip into his face and pull out his jello face and whatever and yeah, puppet head.
0: Yeah.
1: But that scene didn't need to be there. It could be something else. Like They did something else with the guy in the drill who punches his hole through the wall on accident. That's something new and that was a good payoff.
0: Yeah, also was-
1: because that guy's a skeptic.
0: That has a really, there's a lot of tension in that scene.
1: The clown actually isn't one that makes me mad. There's only a couple of glimpses of computer animation that kind of annoy me with the clown mm-hmm. reference. Mm-hmm. But the one that really makes me mad because it has zero oomph is as the mom is running away from the house. The ground just opens up and pops up a single casket. And blah, a monster skeleton falls out. Blah! Yeah, And she screams, egg. Like, cut that... It's
0: really ineffective.
1: It's ineffective. Cut it out. I don't need that nod. I would have kind of liked more caskets just popping out like insanity like in the first movie. That's what I was getting like really... I started cheering this last time watching the first one because <laughs> all the caskets were just like launching out of the ground and it was nuts. And that's like the Toby Hooper kinetic and insanity. Right. Environmental chaos that i think this movie would have benefited from but it's not there however this is still not a bad movie yeah it brings a lot of new to the table
0: it really does and you know it's something that i appreciate more like uh interaction between characters and what they mean to each other it really resonates with me
1: i don't believe you
0: you don't of course i
1: do you say it every podcast oh characters connections
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a a broken record, okay, I get it. I'm a broken record again, I get it. I'm a broken record again, I get it. I'm a broken record, I get it.
1: All right, all right. So, remakes, shmemakes?
0: It's hard to say, because we do want original content. Obviously. We do want remakes to stop happening, like, so much. Like, it's just one after the other, after the other, after the other. And it is tiresome and grueling. Okay,
1: the worst of all remakes recently is Fright Night Part 2. It's not even (laughs) Fright Night Part 2 or Fright Night 2. They remade Fright Night with Anton Yelkin and Colin Farrell. And then... A few years later, they remade the movie and set it in another setting while kids are on vacation. It's a brand new movie. They made the Jerry vampire a lady with a different spelling, like with an I. <laughs> and it's that's like the worst. It's like, studios, stop it. Just if you're going to make a sequel, make a sequel that follows the first. Don't remake what you just remade.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was... I- for a long time, I was defender of the remake. And this one is included in that, but I, I, I don't know, man. It's getting to be too much.
1: It's a case-by-case scenario for me. If you're gonna tell me that you're gonna remake something, show me what you're doing, and then I'll <laughs> yeah. be like, yeah, that looks cool. Oh, uh-huh. no, that's lame. Why are you even bothering? Yeah. On that note, I say both poltergeists are worth your view. Don't poo-poo this remake.
0: You know what? I think a, a lot of people are just saying it's terrible before they see it.
1: It's popular to yeah. do. It's
0: really... There's a lot of good to it. There's a lot of good to the original. But... So everybody, if you like what you're hearing, please, please, please subscribe to our iTunes. Vincent Price's Laugh. Go ahead and uh, search, subscribe, like us. Review us, give us a rating, give us all your praise that you can possibly give.
1: Put us on iTunes map, please.
0: Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter. It's at Vincent Price, LOL. You can follow us on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Vincent Price's laugh. Or check back with ouchmyego.com all the time because we're always uploading new stuff and and new content. You can find Andrew's other podcast, What do We Just Watch? And there's even a cooking blog that is affectionately called Cooking with Vincent Price's laugh where we try out recipes from A Treasury of Great Recipes by Vincent and Mary Price. Everything's so cool, right?
1: Yeah, everything's awesome.
0: Yay. All right, so thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next time.
1: Good night. This podcast is brought to you by Ouch My Ego. Visit ouchmyego.com.
0: Backwards, what's that? Always forward.